Podcast Revolution Network presents. The Way with Noah. excited that we finally connected in our chatting today. Um, Angry Black Lady from Twitty, Imani Handy, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I mean, you know, for those who are checking us out, you might follow us both on Twitter. You might see us both on Twitter. You might not think like, why would they ever talk? But here's the thing about Black women. We're pretty awesome. And <laughs> we can have conversations with nuance and we can look beyond, beyond um, well, now it's 280 characters, but 140 characters to see what's the commonality behind what may appear to be the difference. And so there was a exchange back in late December, right around New Year's, um, that prompted me to jump in and defend Imani. Like, uh, you know, there was a question, her work, her writing, her, her activism, her beliefs were called into question. Now, I don't have firsthand knowledge of that stuff, which is why I invited her here to talk to me today. But I do know enough from following her work with Rewire and the work that she's done on reproductive justice to know that in terms of who does good work versus who doesn't do good work, you know, we may value certain issues more than others. But I thought it was really um, unfair and unbalanced to say she doesn't do any good work at all because you don't agree with what she said on Twitter. And so I wanted to bring you here to, to, to talk today. So thank you so much for joining me again. Appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Um, so just thinking about your current work, right? You know, as a senior legal analyst with, with, with Rewire and the, the, the podcast you're doing with Jessica, like, there's so much really good commentary and nuance. We're talking about reproductive justice, but also just about lawyering and what some of the things we're seeing, especially coming out of this Trump administration, really actually means. Can you just talk a little bit about, about what brought you to Rewire and how you know your own advocacy within journalism has, has grown? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I got into this reproductive rights uh, game rather late in life. I think I was probably 37 at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I had just decided that I was going to leave my private practice, what many of your listeners might uh, refer to as my foreclosure attorney days. Um, and, de <laughs> <laughs> and I decided that that wasn't, you know, I'd gone to law school initially to help people. And it was a decade later and I had not done any of that. So I started getting, it was right around 2011 when the Tea Party exploded. There was an explosion in the number of abortion restrictions that were being passed in the states. And I thought to myself, you know, there needs to be a place where people can go to figure out what is going on in their backyard. So if they want to go protest at, you know, a hearing or if they just want to know, you know, this legislation is going to affect me as a as a potentially pregnant person, as a person of reproductive age. Um, so I started crowdsourcing information on Twitter from various people in states just to get a basically just a database of legislation. And so I did that just kind of on my own for about a year and a half until uh, my current boss, Jody Jacobson at Rewire, it was called RH Reality Check at the time you know, basically said, hey, do you want to do this and get paid for it? And I was like, yes, please. So, and, and I'd already been freelance writing for her for about six six months at that point. So okay. I came on as a, as a contractor in late 2012. And then by, I think I started as a full-time staff person in 2013. 
And that's then brought my database work with me. And now we've got this full legislative tracker that has the abortion restrictions for right. every state over the past four years. And it's this amazing resource, just not only for journalists and activists, but just for people in general who right. want to understand how this stuff works. Um, in terms of the courts, I, you know, once Jessica and I sort of hooked up and started our own two-person legal department back in, I guess it was beginning of 2017, our goal was to explain reproductive rights law in a way that helps people who didn't go to law school understand it. Because there are, there are plenty of people who write about the law and who write about even about abortion rights in the law, but they tend to write for each other. And right. lawyers tend to be very, you know, we have our own language Absolutely. and we think in a certain way. And it sometimes can be difficult for people, for lay people to understand that just simply because they're not trained right. in, in that way. And so what I've been doing with the Boom Lawyer Written series and now with the podcast is just breaking down these concepts into bite-sized chunks. So, you know, if I say there was a preliminary injunction that was granted in X case, people know what a preliminary injunction is. It means that, you know, this, whatever, the state isn't joined from enforcing this law until there's a trial on the merits. I mean, well, what's a trial on the merits? That's right. what you traditionally think of as a jury trial or a trial in front of a bench, um, a bench trial in front of a judge where you have evidence and whatnot. So, yeah, that my, my goal is basically to just make the law more accessible to everyone so everyone knows what's going on when it comes right. to their rights because the rights are civil rights, LGBTQ rights, um, abortion rights, they're all being won or lost at the at the courts. And Trump is just stacking the courts with right wing, just incompetent and horrible people. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> a long nutshell. You know, and it's that that's an interesting transition, right? You know, you go to law school, we go to law school for the reason we go to law school, then you come out and you take that job. The job mm -hmm. and, and one they of the offer jobs you the money and you're like, okay, please, I'll take that money. And the, then the loan payment that's looming. But but you were able to transition from, you know, that it says, I think your, your bio says you're a recovering lawyer. Right, um, right. <laughs> you, were, you were able to transition, you know, from maybe doing work that you weren't really enthusiastic about to doing something that it seems like that you have a lot of passion for. How how has how was it for you making that transition from, you know, doing the lawyering as the job? to doing more of this advocacy journalism as not just your profession, but what it seems like as a passion. Yeah, I mean, it was very scary at first. When I made the decision to leave private practice, I didn't really have a whole lot of savings, even though I should have because I was making a shit ton of money. But, you know, when you're depressed, working at a job that you hate, you, t you tend to spend money to try to make yourself feel right. better. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I'm going to go buy a $400 Michael Kors purse because that's going to help. It doesn't help. <laughs> so ultimately, I, I, I transitioned and I, and I was basically living on a wing and a prayer for about a year and a half, just blogging and doing this database, um, mm -hmm. this crowdsource database. Um, and then, you know, I just I, I sort of suffer from imposter syndrome. I was actually tweeting about this yesterday to where I know that I'm a good writer. I know that I'm a good lawyer. I know that I'm a good thinker. But sometimes I think, man, maybe maybe I'm just full of shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like maybe maybe the fact yeah. that, you know, people respect me as a voice for black women's reproductive rights, maybe I, I don't have any children. I've never had an abortion. You know, what, what makes me that voice? And so I, I sort of struggle with that, and I mm -hmm. have struggled with that. And I think just this year I finally decided to, I got to knock that shit off. Right. Um, you know, I went, I finally went inactive on my bar. I kept my bar license active for six years, paying $500 a year for a license that I wasn't using because I was really afraid that at some point 
someone was going to pull the rug out from under me on this legal journalism thing and be like, ha ha, this ain't, this ain't you. And then I'd have to go back to private practice. So, you know, this is the year where I finally feel like, you know, I'm, I, I've gotten to a place in my career that I want to be. I feel like, you know, it took me till I was 38 years old to do it, but I'm doing work that I'm passionate about. I wake up every day and I'm happy to go to, well, I don't go to work. I've, put on my a different pair of pajama pants and go to the living room. But, right. you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to get up every day, even though it's, uh, you know, every day I practically wake up with a panic attack just because of what's going on in the administration. It does make me feel good that at least the work that I do during the day helps people or at least, you know, opens people's eyes to what's going on, explains legal concept, explains, you know, I just did an explainer on, on immigration, on immigrants' rights and the constitutional rights that they have and the okay. feedback I've gotten is, oh, that's great, I didn't really know that. And that's the kind of thing that I like to hear. I like to hear, oh, I didn't know that, and I understand it now better because you explained it in right, this clear right, and concise right. way. Right, <laughs> and, and that is, like, really important, and I definitely can relate about going to law school for one thing. You think you're going to go, you're going to come out, you're going to save the world, you're going to make it a better place, and you end up in a job or jobs, and it's just like, oh, I hate my life. I mm -hmm. have all this time I wasted. I could have did this other thing instead of going to law school and maybe been a little happier and then creating your own path. So I definitely respect and understand that. But so so getting to kind of some of the controversy that surrounds you, follows you mm -hmm. around on Twitter, if you dare say something that someone doesn't agree with, one of the issues that does come up is, you know, from your private practice days, mm -hmm. you know, the foreclosure attorney stuff. Yeah. Like, what exactly were you doing within the vein of foreclosure? And, and how does that relate to some of the, the like the criticism, I guess, that you get? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I worked at a firm. I definitely worked at a firm that I would call a foreclosure mill. Um, I did that after I got laid off for like the third time. Um, it was in the recession. The legal yeah. market was terrible. I had bills to pay. Um, I went to a firm that um, was that uh, a guy that I had worked for previously was a partner at. So it was like, come, you know, you can basically come here, write these. It was basically, I was basically writing briefs and mm -hmm. doing loan mods under the HAMP program, which, you know, mm -hmm. Obama had instituted at the time. So right. certainly I was part of a system that led to people losing their homes. Whether I, me personally, you know, kicking people out of their homes, that wasn't my job. My job was to try to keep people in their homes through the uses through the HAMP program, which was a bullshit program, and we all know that now, but it was 2010, you know, that was just the work that I was doing, right. and as I was doing it, I was miserable, I mean, I just really hated it, I felt like, you know, here I am, this person that went to law school trying to help people, and all I'm doing is trying, is basically delaying the inevitable for a lot right. of these people, which is them losing their homes, and that's, that's not a good thing to be doing, that's not something that I went to law right. school to do. Um, and it made me very unhappy. And so I left that work and started, and as I explained, you know, went on my own for about a year and a half and then, and then changed. So I guess what frustrates me with the folks who come at me with the foreclosure attorney stuff is that it has not, it's become sort of a, uh, just an insult that's lobbed at me that I think a lot of the people who even lob at me know that it's not true. They know that I wasn't kicking poor people out of their house. And what's really frustrating is a lot of times it's not even you were kicking poor people out of their houses, you were kicking poor black people out of their houses. Mm. So they're trying to add this racial element as if to say I'm some sort of race traitor and because I'm some sort of race traitor and because I'm such a prominent voice on Twitter and I'm black and I'm loud and I'm opinionated, you know, maybe this isn't a person you should be listening to black people because of the damage that she caused your community. That's the vibe that I get from it. Right. Um, and it's just simply, I just think it's, you know, 
I think it's inact. I don't think that I would have called my, called myself a foreclosure attorney at the time because at the time I had spent basically a decade doing mostly insurance work on okay. the defense side and on the policy side. Okay. So I would have said I'm an insurance lawyer, which isn't much better. You know what I mean? It's not much better. The, a lot of corporate legal work is just it's a lot of it is garbage. You well, know, it's one so of the things that they don't prepare us for when we're going into law school, right? Because there are a lot of us, particularly if you're like a first generation, you know, law student or first generation college grad or whatever, there's a lot of us who go into the field thinking that we're really gonna help people mm-hmm. or we don't really think about the way in which we get into these systems or these firms, how it really does have real world impact and and you know once we grow more maybe politically we start to understand the different systemic issues but i think back to my first year my first year my first summer i was at a a insurance defense firm you know doing subrogation work and stuff oh god yeah it was horrible but i made enough money to buy a car because my car i had two kids my kids were little when i was in law Mm -hmm. school and my car broke down and i needed a new car yeah yeah i could understand you know what it what it was and what it ultimately came down to for me though was i came out in what 2008 2009 when the market had crashed so mm-hmm. the offers that I, were being put on the table no longer existed so that right. was an awful time period I can in, only in the imagine. legal profession in particular um yeah. and then also as a black woman you don't necessarily have the same and before anyone who's listening starts shouting about identity politics you know just just whatever because it's it's real we are we're already a, a super minority in the profession there, there are not that many of us in terms of partners, you know, in firms or in some of these yeah. higher up places, but the same level of connections and access, right, that people have aren't necessarily readily available to us. So it, it, it does become more difficult. It's not an excuse, but it's just our reality when we're trying mm-hmm. to navigate these spaces professionally. So I did find it, I've always found it interesting. And I always wondered, I'm like, I wonder what she actually did. Being a lawyer, like, I'm like, I wonder what she actually did, because there's a lot of us, like, on paper, it might sound like we do something like we're drowning babies or something like that. But in reality, right. like you're putting. I mean, in reality, I was calling up the homeowners, you know, helping them fill out the forms, helping them forestall maybe the inevitable. Yeah. Um, what really bothers me about the people who, you know, come at me about this on Twitter is that they go to Pacer, you know, and they're downloading these documents. They're downloading pleadings with my name on them. Wait, they're and they just don't Pacer access to. People are paying to like dig up. Pacer, because anyone, Pacer, Pacer's not free anymore. It's not. No, they are paying. You have to, to pay to download documents. <laughs> yeah, so it's like my name is. Well, your name was on this document, and this is the you know whatever happened to this homeowner. And I'm like, man, my name is on so many legal documents right. because that's just the way it works. You know, you get the partners on the top, and it just goes down by seniority. So, you know, the fact that my name is on something doesn't really mean a whole lot in terms of like practicality in terms of how things work. And so this idea that, you know, I have some, I was, you know, sitting in an office with a monocle, you know, maniacally signing off as people were being dragged out of their homes. It's just, that's just not my reality. Um, And I think that so many of the people who, you know, like to say, oh, well, you were kicking poor black people out of their houses. Like if they actually took a look at the work that I do now, I think that they wouldn't hate me as much as they do. Well, so it's that, a real bizarre thing. It's to, an interesting evolution in your work. Yeah. And we were talking about this a little bit before we started that, you know, there are many people who are considered almost maybe even darlings of the left, right? And they may have had, or they absolutely did have problematic politics, problematic writings, right? Mm-hmm. But then they had their own personal shift and now they're they're held, heralded and celebrated for the work that they do now, um, right. and it's almost never mentioned what they used to do. But right. with you, and that and, courtesy is not extended to me, and I and 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 I have a suspicion as to why that is. But you know, I don't want to. 
I don't want to, you know, be, be, I know your listeners aren't too fans of, uh, too big fans of identity politics, but it seems to me that a lot of white men who shift in this way are heralded as being heroes. And I don't know if that's because their default is to be white privileged assholes. And when they turn out not to be, or when they, when they, you know, they, they progress from having these views that are steeped in white privilege and, and then they, they progress into a more socialist view of thinking or to right. a thinking that centers people of color, women, what have you, maybe that's why they're heralded and maybe because I'm a black woman, I should have always had these points of view in these politics. Right, right. I'm not sure what it is, but I know from a personal standpoint that I'm quite proud of the progression that I've made and I'm very happy about the work that I do now. Um, and, you know, I basically just, anyone who comes at me with foreclosure, I block them immediately because I know that they're not engaging me in good faith. I know that right. they're not being serious. And there are people who have asked me about my work and I've explained it to them because they came at me and they were like, I just want to understand. And that's, right. that's fair. But right. if you're going to just keep yelling at me, foreclosure attorney, you're kicking people out of the homes. I know you're not being, you're not being, you're not acting in good faith, especially after I've explained as I did to Walker right. Bragman at the end of. December, I, I explained everything that I did. I explained to him what went on. And then two days later, he's back to yelling about how I was kicking poor people out of their homes. So I knew that he wasn't in, in serious about engaging in a conversation. So it seems like, and I, I mean, I've had a, I forget how long, I've been on Twitter for, I don't know how many years now, but I've only been really active on Twitter more like the past three years. Like I, I had a Twitter account, never really used it. And then I think around the time maybe Tamir Rice happened and Trayvon, like, mm -hmm. like that's when I started paying more attention because like, it's like, oh, I got to. I need to say this to somebody and my family's tired of listening to me type of thing. Right. But like, it just seems like, you know, by the time we got to the election cycle, right, this past 2016 election cycle, it just seems like it became even more polarizing in terms sure. of political thought in the way we engage, particularly with the way we engage with major influencers, maybe people who we would hope would take certain positions, you know, or yeah. at least stay more balanced or neutral. And I know you get a lot of flack in particular for, for uh, criticizing, critiquing Bernie Sanders. Now, mm -hmm. whether or not we agree exactly on the critique, it seems like, and I know this from my own critique of him, I've, uh, you actually wrote a post, an uh, article, I think it was, this title was something like, Bernie, there is no revolution without reproductive justice or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and I and, and, and I remember reading that and I remember people's like, like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I was like, actually, she's right. Because like this whole weekend support conservative Democrats thing is trash. Mm -hmm. and the You know, any dim that's promoting it, whether it's Sanders, whether it's anyone else, that's that's a really bad you know point to make. And trading on our rights like that as women is really problematic, particularly considering women of color, black women, you know, this is something that's very crucial for us. And we do so much to hold up these spaces to make sure these people even have these platforms to make such statements, right? So right. like, I remember seeing things like that. And I just, and I just, but, but it's just so like, the urgency, I think that some people feel like from feeling shut out of like mainstream politics or mainstream uh -huh. media, it just seems like Twitter has become this space. Whereas, okay, you can disagree. We don't have to agree, but it's just so like it's not even brutal. It's just it's just trifling sometimes with the way <laughs> the criticism yeah. is coming out, right? And the attacks. And instead of, I mean, it's not necessarily the best platform to decontextualize, you know, <laughs> real deep concepts. But at the same time, it just seems like from many different directions, there isn't the best environment at this time or the past two years to really have these conversations. And it just piles on and piles on and piles on. Yeah, I mean, the election, the primary, I think, really did a number on the left, on, on the left on Twitter. I mean, I was, 
I was surprised at how much fervence I got in response to my statements that I just didn't care for Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And I didn't care for Hillary Clinton either, you know, but it's just that. Well, you and didn't I think say that, that enough. And that, and that, and I, enough about I wasn't adamant enough about how much I did like Hillary Clinton. And I'll, expl- and I'll explain to you why, because I will absolutely admit that I was, my criticisms of Bernie Sanders were definitely more, I had more criticisms of Bernie Sanders than I did about Hillary Clinton. But that's because I've been known Hillary Clinton. You know what I mean? Like I knew, I, I've known what she's been about for 20 years. And Bernie Sanders, like, yeah, he's been in politics for 30 years, but he sort of just came out of nowhere, you know, in 2015 as this contender, as this, you know, person who was going to start this political revolution, which I found slightly insulting in the first place because there was already an ongoing revolution that had been started by Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, you know, I felt like Black Lives Matter was that revolution. And then here it seemed to me that there was this side revolution that was being populated primarily by white people. And at that time, you know, Bernie Sanders had just been disrupted at Netroots. And I was getting so many white guys in my mentions talking about Bernie was marching for your rights before you were even alive. And just all of this really patronizing sort of rhetoric that I think over time, my dislike for the advocates of Bernie blurred into my dislike of him, the person. You know what I mean? It's like if you spend months and months and months at a time being attacked for being stupid or unaware or you just don't know his politics or you're just a hillbot or a shell or a neoliberal and all of these things. After a while, you start to associate the people who are saying those things in defense of a person with that person. And I think right. that's probably what happened um, with respect to me and Bernie Sanders and the primary and the people who have been unhappy with me <laughs> with respect to. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate what you said about knowing Hillary, right? Like, you're right. We have known Hillary. We sat at Hillary. Like, I, you had a piece for, I think it was April 2015, ahead of, or right around time she was announcing, I think it was. Um, about, you know, Hillary and will she actually do right by black women or is she mm-hmm. going to do the same old okie doke? And in it, mm-hmm. you do, you chronicle the way like a good number of her supporters went, you know, right and supported McCain over Obama. And just historically, you looked at the numbers of white women's support for the Democratic candidate over the last several election cycles. And I was just like, yeah, so if you actually looked, but people, it doesn't matter. It's like reading headlines. You said on Twitter this. You didn't say right. this. You, you always right. said this. And, 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 I, and I appreciate that, right? Like I said, as someone who supported Bernie Sanders, like making that case became very hard. And I would tell folks all the time, I was like, you can't be in the mentions of a page that's Black Burner Coalition, right? Run by two Black women dictating to us about what we're supposed to be putting out here because you make yeah. it very difficult for us and we're out supporters. So I definitely could understand and appreciate. And that's, I'm like, I'm going to make a mental list of things to talk with Armani about whenever we get a chance to talk because I could understand on the one hand, um, that frustration, right? Because mm-hmm. again, even as someone who's vocal, if like uh, uh, Benjamin Dixon and I, uh, we were talking about Bernie and how he was not good on certain issues. We would mm-hmm. get major flack from people like, how can you say that he's good on this and this directly benefits black people? But, and, and I, would, I would ask other folks, right, who would only criticize him and not really say anything to him. I would ask them, like, why is that? And the response I often got was, well, he's the one positioning himself basically as being the uber progressive and mm-hmm. a super political revolutionary. She's not. We know she's not going to do certain things. But if you're saying you're committed to truth and justice in this way, cool. Now, here's this longer list of things. And I find that to be an interesting way to engage in dialogue politically. I mean, again, when you're looking at the way people are trying to build something, at some point, some of the onus seems like it needs to be on him and his campaign for Mm -hmm. the way in which, you know, basically the persona around him grew 
Um, not that you can, you, not that you can be responsible for what other people who support you say on Twitter per se, but at the same time, there wasn't wasn't really much structure grassroots wise, right. right? Right. So there was this 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 feeling because you use the word revolution, people think they're at war. I mean, right, <laughs> right, right. And it's and, and and the other thing, it's like these folks who are like talking about a revolution, Tracy Chapman. Um, <laughs> it's like it's like who are the first people that are going to be harmed in this revolution? Absolutely. You know what I mean? It's like. It, the people who are talking the loudest, you get a lot of these white guys, these white hipster guys, these, you know, these dudes who are, come from money, whose families have money, who would be okay if there were an actual revolution with people dying. I mean, it's not, it's not going to be, it would not be pretty. It would be black people. It would be trans people. It would be, right. you know, I remember during the Occupy, during Occupy Wall Street, and I was, I was pretty um, active on Twitter during that time, and I would get very frustrated when I would see these sort of calls these Twitter calls to come out and, and confront the police, you know, like, oh, you know, we're at X, you know, X, Y, and Z intersection and you need to come out here because the police are out here and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you can't be expecting black people to just pop over to and confront the police because white people confronting the police, the long-term consequences are vastly different than for black people confronting the police. Right. Like, I'm not trying to go out there and just get arrested for the sake of getting arrested because that has repercussions for what I might need to right. do in the future. You know what I mean? And so I just get this sense that there is a disconnect about what revolution is, what Bernie's particular brand of revolution is, why it is that um, it seems like you can't, there's this, there's no longer a space for people who don't like either person. Like I was a person who didn't like either candidate. I didn't vote in the primary. And I always said from the beginning, I'm going to vote for whoever wins the, the nomination. Right. If Bernie had won the nomination, I would have voted for him in a heartbeat. You know, it's just, but right. I find it frustrating, this binary thinking, either you are a left, like a true progressive and you support Bernie Sanders or you're not, and you probably are a Hillbot. And that's just, there's got to be space in between for people. And, you know, the thing is, is like, I feel after um, the Netroots disruption, you know, I did see some progress in Bernie's rhetoric around Black Lives Matter, you know, and that's the whole point of the primary, right, is you're right. trying to push people to do better. And I remember at the time being like, this guy could do better if he would center some black people, if he would get some like some black people in the upper echelons of his campaign and really talk about how it is he can reach out to black women specifically, not just as right. part of an economic revolution that's going to help the white working class and also everybody else. So, right. You know, I like Bernie's message. I've always said that I liked his message. I just think he wasn't the right messenger. I would love for that message to come from a brown person, to come from a woman, to come from preferably oh, a brown woman. Identity politics so, again. But then I go with the identity <laughs> politics again, you know? So well, it's, I mean, like, that that was, again, that's something that frustrated me too, right? Like everything became, like identity politics became a catch-all to dismiss any conversation about representation or actually moving the needle on issues of, of racial and gender injustice, whereas mm -hmm. this notion that economics, and we would have this argument with a lot of people all the time, like class only you know, analysis fails a lot of us in this country because mm -hmm. it's both and. You know, I know folks get tired of the word intersectionality, but it's, it's real, right? right? Because you can't, and going back to your work of reproductive justice, right? You know, class, okay, but that's still not gonna address issues of bodily autonomy and health. Right. Like, so, right. so there, there, there are these multiple levels of conversation that need to happen. And it just seemed like, and it still seems like to some extent, people are just incapable of doing so because they can't see how to work the aspects of race. People do a little bit better with gender, but they're still really bad with working in race and class 
and 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 you know as we talk about you know the, uh, um, focusing more on issues of, of particularly trans women trans women of color you know uh, 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 sexual uh, I'm messing up here gender identity I hate that yeah. word because uh but but in, in class and in, in those dynamics as well right so it, it it just seems like there's so much work that needs to be done and I hate to see that you know we're willing to throw each other away because uh-huh. like of this BS on Twitter. You know, what yeah. I'm saying? like th- there's a lot of work and, and just listening to you talk about your progression, right, politically and your progression in your work. Like, it just seems like there are strategies. There is a time and this is actually the time now ahead of a 2020 run for anyone to think about what could we have been doing better so that someone who is an influencer like you wasn't like, man, mm-hmm. I want this. I'm tired. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like. I would love to live in a world where I see a rose emoji and I don't immediately wince. You know what I mean? But I've been attacked by probably the same group of people. You know what I mean? I, I doubt it. I doubt it's rose, quote unquote, rose Twitter writ large. It's just it's the same group of people. And it's a group of people that have had beef with me long before this election cycle. Ooh, um, okay. So, you know, I've had people telling me that I don't care about drone strike victims since 2012. I had someone say to me that drone strikes are like tiny abortions, you know, and these are people who don't respect reproductive rights as a priority, as something that has value. And so the fact that I do that work and I am not focused on whatever they want me to focus on, and it's usually drone strikes or or BDS movement in Palestine, both of I'm anti-drone strike and I am pro-Palestine, but that's not my focus. Like, that's not my lane. And I feel like... Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that you actually have good policy issues? that you're on the right side on? I do. I do. I do. It's just that I'm so in my repro world that if you look at my Twitter feed, it's mostly like live tweeting supernatural and talking about abortion. You know what I mean? I don't. And that's probably a failure of mine. And I actually have been trying more to. (laughs) Can we pause? You just said live tweeting supernatural and talking about abortion. That's pretty much what I do. You know what I mean? It's like my Twitter feed. That's a fascinating combination. (laughs) That's a very fascinating. But. You know, I think that I think that what I think what what unites, you know, the so-called far left and Mm -hmm. I guess I'm neoliberal Twitter. I don't know how I became neoliberal Twitter, but okay, fine. But I think there's more that unites us than divides us. And I really would like to find a way ahead of the 2020 election, certainly, but ahead of the midterms to 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 fix this schism, because I think that this schism is what's going to keep Trump in office for the next six years. And I think that there is there there is a way to fix that schism. I mean, there are people who have who are influencers who, you know, who are who identify as as democratic socialists. There are people who are influencers who identify as centrists, who identify as liberals. And there's not a lot of distance between those policy positions. So there's got to be a way that we can all talk to one another without it turning into you want to drone strike brown people in the Middle East and you hate steel workers in Pennsylvania. You know what I mean? It's like I, I, I have to believe that there's a way that we can fix this because I really don't want to have to live through six more years of Trump. I really don't want to. But at the same time, like I can't I can't. Do, because I just the people don't. who are like, let's get rid of Trump, and we, you know, Pence is not that bad. I'm like, oh my God, what planet? Yeah, Pence will be worse probably. Pence will be worse, and that, and I need people to understand that. And I did disagree with your tweet about the steel workers. Like, I rolled my eyes. I'm like, you know what? No, it's not right to go in her timeline and be like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. I'm like, whatever. So and also, and, and someone, to my, someone and, trying to tag you in my tweet, and I'm like, don't do that. Why would you? Yeah, do that? and and with respect to that particular tweet, I said, and as soon as I tweeted it, that I had 
missed that I didn't read the article. That no, I no, and I saw that too. Right? And I, and I was like, like, do you want to ding me for not reading the article? Like, that's fine. Because really that's a the certain New York thing. Times' fault with that. With that uh, and that's more of what my, like, I did a thread. And my thread was more about how the New York Times was trash because their headline was clickbait. It had nothing to do with most of the article. They talked to right. one Trump supporter and a right. bunch of black people. <laughs> right. Who right. And it's like. To be laid off too. And I was just like. But then you, I, you you were like, oh, wait a minute. I didn't read the article. I just retweeted it. And, right. And yeah. Right. So, I mean. And it's, it's like, like, and that's what I sort of do anyway. You know, anytime I see a Times article or a right. Post article where they're like, Trump voters in Indiana, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, nobody fucking cares. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sorry. I don't have space to care about Trump voters. I do not wish them ill. I don't think that they deserve what is happening to them under this administration. But at the same time, I don't have the space to worry about people who would not worry about me, right. who, to worry about people who were so enamored with this white supremacist ethno-nationalism that they decided that voting for Trump was a good idea, even though there was no way on God's green earth that he was going to do anything to help them. So my politics have always been, you center the most vulnerable, right? You center trans women of color, and then everybody else is going to get free. That's how it works. That includes white people, that includes white racists, that includes everybody. So when people expect me to show some sort of remorse or some sort of sympathy for Trump voters. I just don't have that emotional labor. I don't have that emotional capacity to do it. That Does that mean that I, I want them dead or I think they should all suffer under having a shitty healthcare system? Absolutely not. But it does mean that I, I'd rather focus my time on people of color. And so the fact that that article dealt with people of color and I didn't read it, like, yeah, ding me for that. I absolutely deserve that. But then to carry on for two weeks over Christmas talking about how I hate black steel workers, it's like, you, that's not good faith argument. And I can't, I can't interact with people who I know are coming at me in bad faith. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in thinking about like you, like we talked about bridging the schism, like even if you can't bridge like the schism per se, being able to engage right in conversation and dialogue to the extent you can have a conversation in twitter world like it uh -huh. just seems like there is there is a necessity to actually like elevate our discourse right uh -huh. because what's happening it is a very like tit for tat petty um I, and i'm fine with petty but like petty has a needs to have a purpose right like, uh -huh. i mean just being out here petty 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 politics for no reason it, it really actually detracts away from whatever work or agenda people think that they're promoting. Um, and, and, and we see this happening, you know, like I said, on, on multiple different fronts. Um, but like being able to, to, to reach like Trump supporters, like a lot of people have different opinions about that. I'm of the opinion, like, I don't think that we need to go out and actively recruit people. I do think we should be talking about issues and work that apply to communities. And if those people gravitate toward it, then great. Um, but but this notion that somehow uh, Democrats are failing because they're not actively pursuing the lost working class white voters um, because that's the only way that they can win because anyone saying that they need to embrace this more diverse you know coalition doesn't look at the data like there was a piece in the box recently that I just read I was like why do y'all keep trying to make this a thing was it the one about the re where they said that Steve Phillips was wrong yeah, and that Steve really Phillips yeah I read that and I was like come I was on like, man why. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe you came out your mouth and said Steve was wrong, first off. Not that I agree right? with Steve on absolutely everything. Who agrees with anyone on absolutely everything? But to say he's wrong or he doesn't yeah. know what he's talking about. It's just like, yeah. Like, and and that's the thing. It's like, and, and you know, Demo white, the white working class has like ran away from Democrats because of racial issues, because of identity politics. So to ignore that seems foolish to me. Right. Right. And I think that 
you know, when I say like we don't need white people, what I'm really saying is we don't need white Trump voters. I really think that I mean, based on Steve Phillips' book, well, the coalition like is black brown the people. Population anyway. Right, but this this coalition is black and brown people and progressive white people. That's the coalition. Those are, and the, as long as we get all those people out to vote, as long as we can bridge some of the gaps in in politics on that among that coalition, right. and as long as we can deal with the voter suppression and actually get the people to the polls, right. I think we can win. And, you know, we can talk about there are various, you know, I know people hold various views about what winning looks like, whether we just shove a bunch of Democrats in and then try and hold their feet to the fire, whether we get the blue dogs out and try and get more progressive people in. I mean, whatever that that's a strategy that we can all have a serious conversation about. But right. we're not even really there yet, because, as you say, we're still sniping at one another on Twitter. And I will be the first to admit that I am petty as hell. I'm absolutely petty like, as hell, I and I am hated. I'm with being petty. You know, petty, petty politics, shout out to the sisters from the Black Joy Mixtape. Petty is an action verb. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, petty, yeah. is, petty is real. I love it. But at the same time, petty with a purpose. Right, right. petty with a purpose. And, and a like my petty my, is not purposeful. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's like my, what I've been trying to do this year is to be like a kinder, gentler, angry black lady. Where I don't, my first <laughs> instinct isn't going to be to curse you out. Like, I'm trying to, to actually just be more reasonable because right. I really do because the strife over the past two years it's just not good for my mental health it's not helpful for anyone it's not, it's not health period right yeah exactly. I mean it's just we have issues with heart disease and high blood pressure and all types of stuff fibroids yeah. I mean name it we have it right. um we we die younger than we should so no right. that that makes that totally makes sense right and I just you know I I think that I think that there is room for I think there needs to be room for people who are between like Marxists and people who are maybe just run of the mill liberals. I don't really know where I fall on that. I, I don't necessarily have a label for myself. I just know when I see people say this should happen and this should happen. I'm like, yeah, that should happen. Right. Yeah, that should happen. Yeah. Prison abolition. Yeah, that should happen. $15 minimum. All of those things should happen. It's just that any person looking at my Twitter feed is going to be like, damn, she really talks about abortion all the time. And I can understand if that's not your jam and you think, well, she doesn't really tweet enough about X, Y, and Z. Perhaps I should broaden the subjects that I tweet about. But it's just like I didn't, I didn't plan on being this Twitter influencer with a hundred thousand followers. Like that was never. I started Twitter with feeling like I was shouting into a void. You know what I mean? And so now it's like as I've become more prominent, I have to think more carefully about what I tweet and how I word things because one like flippant tweet could go viral in a minute, and then it says something that I didn't mean, and then it's. And then it's a whole thing. It's a conflagration, and I'm and trying to avoid that. Will always be there, whether it's a screenshot or actually present. Yeah, right? it's always going to be there, you know. And then you got people who just like it's screenshot Twitter, or they're just screening, screenshotting your tweets, and then mocking you to their friends. And I'm like, what's that about? That's not really useful. I just don't see why. So, but you know, everyone's got their form of petty. Like I'm, I'm petty. If you you want to be petty, that's your form of petty. That's fine. But I would hope eventually that we can stop the sniping and maybe like talk. You know, <laughs> we can stop the sniping and maybe talk. I like that. Um, I was just thinking about what you were saying, though, about like the labels. Right. And not really knowing where on a spectrum or, or fluidity. Like I'm like, like, you know, my daughter has I got a six year old. She's helped me learn a lot more about like sexuality and things like that. She talks about, you know, gender fluidity and all this, all this other catchy stuff I hear on TV. And, and my 16 year old explains it to me. But I think about my politics in the same way to some extent. Right. Like it's, it's, it's like I don't know that there's a specific label that I gravitate towards. 
Um, but there are, you know, issues, concerns, and people that I'm like, yeah, okay, I agree with that. I can understand with you. And and I so maybe that's why I don't get as upset about certain things when whether it's Twitter or whatever whatever medium it is because like a lot of this stuff is political gamesmanship, right? When we see you know different things happening and stuff. But when we're really thinking about like quote unquote doing the work and actually moving the needle on issues and policy, it's not really going to come down to the label per se. It's going to uh-huh. come down to what the actual action that people are engaging in, the actual language being used, you know, to move people to action, to to to, to drive work, to get legislation passed. And, and that's what I appreciate so much about like the reproductive work and the stuff with with, with Rewire. Like I got to inter- interview Khaled, um, you know, a while back about the stuff in, in, in Charlotte with the abortion clinic, which is something uh-huh. I guess I didn't even really realize. So it's good that there are people out there who are writing, tweeting and talking all the time about abortion issues because I would have never known, you know, not seeing it directly. I would have never known like the fact that you have abortion clinics still under siege. I knew it was uh-huh. a thing, you know, a while ago. I didn't know that was still a thing. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. Because it's not widely covered. We don't have doctors being shot in the head the same way as they used to. You know, we don't have that 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 scourge happening on the same level anymore. So, like, I think a lot of us tune out and we're like, okay, yeah, Roe v. Wade, abortion rights, woohoo. You right, right. I mean, and when you're in it, like, you see just yeah. the, the tipping away at the access. It's like, that's why when that, that drone tweet, I was like, I prioritize my uterus because I'm in it every day and I see the damage that it has on people and I see you know, women on the border in Texas going into Mexico to get to do DIY abortions. I mean, all of these things, people are going to die. And then when I see when I see people trying to divest reproductive rights from economic justice, it just drives me crazy because what what hope do you have for economic future if you end up having a baby that you can't afford to pay for or raise or have? It's just, it's, it's mind-boggling to me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I... I appreciate you having having this conversation with you. I appreciate um, being able giving being given an opportunity to talk to probably an audience that doesn't normally listen to me. Um, and I don't really know what else to say. I'm not a bad person. I'm really not. <laughs> I'm actually You're quite not, the angry black lady. <laughs> you know, I'm a very pleasant angry black lady. What can I say? She's an angry, she's a pleasant, angry black lady. She's a nicer 2018 angry black lady. A kinder, gentler, angry black lady. And so, so yeah, I definitely appreciate, you know, you taking the time to have the conversation and just to talk a little bit more because, like I said, I have seen your work and understand a little bit more beyond, like, we're all people beyond what we're tweeting. Uh I mean, that's just the bottom line. I mean, Twitter has been an amazing uh, vehicle for for communicating. It's driven, you know, action. It's driven, you know, people doing work and legislation and responses and news. But also, you know, it's just a snapshot of who we are and and, and, and what we think. Um, So I appreciate you as well for taking the time to engage me because you could have been like, "Mm, uh uh-huh, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, I usually, I, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I will, no, I'm I know you, the kind of person you, that, you, like, you, you know, especially you if there's a black like, woman out there who wants to have a conversation, like, I'm always for that. So, awesome, awesome, um, awesome. Yeah. Well, definitely appreciate you so much for taking the time. Um, hopefully in the future we'll be able to follow up because I think, like, this 2018 cycle as we're looking at the midterms and how things are, are moving forward and beyond, um, we're going to definitely need more of us to, to sit down and have, you know, good conversations about good people doing good work. And uh, I really took that personally when I saw, you know, that so-and-so was doing good work and you weren't. Like, I took right. that personal because, like, as a black woman, regardless of, you know, we can, we can differ on our politics or stances or whatever, but I really do feel like there's a double standard that applies to us that mm-hmm. we don't see, you know, particularly in our white male counterparts. And that actually goes for any woman of color. But I really yeah. don't think with black women, we get 
the least support mm -hmm. and we get all of the criticism mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm seeing it um, I'm just sitting here just thinking about it and I'm seeing it happen in so many different places and it's like okay I could stand in and critique this person and I could join in because okay this there is this issue this point I can make or I can step back and observe and see what would be the better use of my time and for mm -hmm. me having a conversation with you has been a better use of my time well um, mine as well and I appreciate it <laughs> awesome so all right I will. Thank you. That was dope. I appreciate it. That was good. You. Thank you. I mean, that, it was really nice talking to you. That I really appreciate nice it. You, um, you don't have to run this by me. If you, I mean, you can just go ahead and post it. Okay. 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 Yeah. yeah I'll get it clipped and stuff. Uh, just the end, and I'll edit in um, an intro and stuff, and then I will get it up, and I'll make sure to tag you in it and share it with Rachel. So thank you. I All appreciate right. it. Sounds good. All right. Cool. It was good talking to you. Good talking to you too. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.